The Montana Middle is proud to be supported by the Montana Mint, the self-proclaimed greatest website in Montana. If you haven't heard of the Montana Mint, I recommend you check them out. You can follow them on Facebook and get their newsletters sent to your inbox. The Mint brings the best of Montana to the internet. Think of it as like a BuzzFeed for Montana. The Mint usually stays out of politics unless it's a bizarre or funny story, but they liked what we're trying to do here with the Montana Middle to try to counteract the divisiveness of politics a little. So thank you, Montana Mint, for supporting us as we get off the ground. Welcome to the first episode of Montana Middle, everybody. I'm your host, Dan West. I'm starting this podcast because I love podcasts, and I always wish there was one that covered Montana politics. Because politics in Montana are fascinating, and there's a lot going on that impacts our lives that's not getting transmitted very well to the public. Now, I got really involved in Montana politics in a unique way earlier this year during the special election to fill Ryan Zinke's congressional seat. And it was a really fulfilling experience. It gave me a chance to travel all across the state and meet new people I never would have met otherwise. At its best, politics is something that brings us together as citizens and binds our communities together. Unfortunately, politics also gets really polarized and divisive, and it gets unpleasant to talk about, and then people disengage from it. But I think there's a lot of forces acting to make it seem like we're more divided than we really are. I think these forces have to do a lot with media and money. Maybe Russia has a little bit something to do with it, too. But the point is, divisive politics makes us feel bad, and constructive politics actually makes us feel good. Constructive politics improves the economy, our quality of life, and it protects our rights. So it's important to stay engaged in politics, and I hope to apply the political experience I've had to create a balanced and informative podcast about Montana politics. It's a bit of an experiment because political media seems to flourish the more polarized it is, so we'll see if anyone even listens to this. I plan on bringing on guests from across the political spectrum who are active in Montana's political scene and will speak freely and openly. The show will highlight examples of bipartisanship and constructive politics, so that at the end of each episode, you might feel a little better about politics, to remind you that as a citizen, engaging in politics is not just a duty, but a right and a privilege, and we should celebrate that instead of ignoring it. On top of that, engaging in politics can be fun. It's a great way to meet new people and stay involved in your community, And it's one of those things that can lead to the kind of experiences that reaffirm your faith in humanity and reminds us how lucky we are to live in the best state, in the best country in the history of the world. Politics is a celebration of what it means to be American. Now, I'm a Democrat, and I tend to lean left on things, but I don't consider myself a radical. And I also agree with a lot of conservative principles like limited government, fiscal responsibility, and free markets. I believe in the Constitution and our system of government that keeps it a living document. And I have friends from across the political spectrum. I love talking about politics with all of them. And it turns out politics is actually a great conversation topic when it doesn't go off the rails. So why not just try to always keep it on the rails? What I hate seeing is when politics ruins relationships. And it happens all the time. It happens in families and between friends and co-workers, and it shouldn't be like that. We all need to acknowledge that politics is always about society as a whole. It's bigger than any of us, so we need to keep it at arm's length emotionally. We need to keep in mind that the whole reason we have politics is because of our system of democracy, and we uphold that because we want to preserve things like freedom, justice, and equality. Things that we hold dear, and every citizen in this country is entitled to. And those freedoms include the freedom to hold whatever kind of political views we want. And we have the freedom to change our minds as well. We change throughout our lives and the political landscape is always shifting. So it's important to stay engaged and try to stay up on issues as best we can and not shy away from political conversations just because they're political. I hope this podcast can help with that. So I plan to produce two episodes a month. The show will start out with a D.C. update segment, reporting some highlights from what Montana's members of Congress are doing in Washington, D.C. Then we'll have a guest interview, and then we'll close it out with a last word segment and then some music featuring a Montana artist. I'll post the episode on our website, themontanamiddle.com, and have links to things that were on the episode. 
And that's the show, folks. Thanks for tuning in. We have a great first guest for this episode, Rob Saldine, a political science professor at the University of Montana. We talk about the political spectrum in Montana and what to expect in 2018. Spoiler alert, we're not sure exactly what's going to happen, but there's going to be some interesting races to watch for sure. Rob also gives advice on how to talk about politics at Thanksgiving. He says you don't have to, but if it comes up, you could talk about the Montana middle. And with that, here's the DC update. Montana senators have joined forces on a few issues recently, demonstrating a spirit of bipartisanship. One issue is about the Secure Rural Schools Program, or SRS. It's a program that provides payments to counties with federal land to compensate them for declining timber production. And that money is used to fund essential services like schools, law enforcement, and infrastructure. The problem is that it expired in 2015, and it hasn't been reauthorized since then. They sent the letter to the president asking him to include SRS reauthorization in any future emergency disaster funding bills. The letter was signed by 12 senators, 9 Democrats, and 3 Republicans. Tester and Danes also expressed concern about proposed entrance fee hikes in national parks in separate press releases. Links to those are on the website. They also co-sponsored a bill to reduce red tape on a forest management issue. Their bill would reverse the ruling of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in the case between the Cottonwood Environmental Law Center versus the U.S. Forest Service. You might have heard of the Cottonwood case, and I think it's a complex issue that probably deserves its own episode. But in short, it has to do with about 150 million board feet of timber in Montana that is also habitat for grizzly bear and lynx. It's a sticky issue, but it's another example of Tester and Danes working together on something. Veterans Day happened this month, and Senator Tester is the ranking member on the Veterans Affairs Committee. He seems really dedicated to this role, and some of his veterans' legislation actually passed through Congress and was signed into law by President Trump already this year. You might remember that before Senator Tester became a farmer, he was a music teacher. Here he is playing taps on Veterans Day. Senator Daines took to the Senate floor to give a speech in support of tax cuts. He quoted a speech from JFK, making the point that both Democrats and Republicans have advocated for tax cuts throughout history. And I gotta say, it would be great if we didn't have to pay so many taxes. If we could do it without adding to the national debt or cutting essential programs, I'd totally be for it. So here's a clip of Senator Daines' floor speech. I'll put a link to the full speech on the website. President Kennedy went on to say this. I repeat, our practical choice is not between a tax cut deficit and a budgetary surplus. It is between two kinds of deficits, a chronic deficit of inertia as the unwanted result of inadequate revenues and a restricted economy, or a temporary deficit of transition resulting from a tax cut designed to boost the economy increase tax revenues, and achieve, and I believe this can be done, a budget surplus. The first type of deficit is a sign of waste and weakness. The second reflects an investment in the future. If somebody just tuned in, they might think I was quoting perhaps President Reagan or perhaps some other Republican leader. This was President John F. Kennedy in 19. 62. We need to cut taxes once again and to put money back into the pockets of the American people. I can tell you that Montanans need more jobs, but importantly, they need better paying jobs 
Most importantly, they need bigger paychecks. The best way to give Montanans a pay raise, how about cutting their taxes? We need tax cuts. Congressman Gianforte gave a speech on the House floor wishing Montana a happy birthday. Montana turned 128 years old on November 8th. Here he is. Mr. Speaker, I rise today to pay tribute to a special place, Montana. From our snow-capped mountains to our nearly endless prairies, Montana is an awe-inspiring place of tremendous beauty. We call it Big Sky Country, the treasure state, the last best place, and we call it home. When Montana first became a territory in 1864, it was the Wild West. Prospectors, cattle ranchers, and uh, settlers overcame scorching sun and blistering cold to establish our nation's 41st state. But there's something even more special than the beauty of an eastern Montana sunset or being knee-deep in a crystal-clear mountain stream. It's the people of Montana. Montanans are kind, warm, generous, and hardworking people. On 1889, our special place became part of something even more special, the land of the free and the home of the brave. Today, Montanans celebrate 128th anniversary of our statehood. Thank you, Mr. Speaker, and I yield back. You can find links to the topics from the D.C. update on our website. And now, here's my conversation with Professor Rob Saldine. Joining me for the first episode of The Montana Middle is Rob Saldine, a professor of political science at the University of Montana and a frequent political contributor to state and national media outlets. He published a book earlier this year called When Bad Policy Makes Good Politics, Running the Numbers on Health Reform, and he's back on campus in Missoula teaching this fall. Professor Saldine, it's really special to have you as the first guest for this show. Thank you so much for coming on. Hey, Dan, great to be with you, um, especially for this inaugural episode. <laughs> you're the perfect first guest for the show because this is a podcast about politics and you're a political expert. You're a political scientist. And in that role, you're like an objective, unbiased observer of politics, which is a perfect perspective to have on for our first show. Yeah, okay, sounds good. I, I, I try I, I try to play that role, <laughs> probably sometimes better than others. Yeah, well, uh, a, but yeah, that's that, that that's always the objective anyway. Yeah, I mean, it's a tough spot to be in. You're, but you're basically smack dab in the middle of of everything, you know, of everything that we're talking about. The title of the show is the Montana Middle, which refers to the middle of the political spectrum. And the goal of the show is to foster better political conversations because. Most people think of themselves as moderates, and yet we all still seem to be so insurmountably divided. It's, a, it's kind of a funny problem to had, have. Sometimes it's, it's kind of sad. This show will try to get over that divide, break through it, what have you, because I don't think it's as insurmountable as we sometimes get stuck thinking. And it'll help to start these conversations with a basic understanding of what we mean by the middle, what it refers to. Again, that's why we're so glad to have you, of all people, as this show's first guest. Good. Well, it's a, that's, a, that's an ambitious task for you, Dan. Um, uh, you know, it seems, seems more ambitious now than, than it has in a long time, but uh, it's good to have somebody out there working towards that. Well, it's an experiment, so we'll see how it goes. So we're talking about the middle of the political spectrum, and we all kind of understand what the political spectrum means. Left is liberal, right is conservative, generally. But it's also still kind of a fuzzy, abstract idea. People uh -huh. might interpret it differently according to their own values or at different stages in their lives. You're teaching Intro to American Government this semester. And how do you describe the political spectrum to your students? Yeah, well, right. I mean, typically when we think of the, the political spectrum or the ideological spectrum, you know, we think of um, conservatism on the right and liberalism or progressivism as being on the left. And, um, and so, so it's a, there, there's a strong ideological component to it. And we're basically talking here about a, a kind of coherent philosophical system about the relationship between society and government. And, and usually that 
has its has a foundation in it takes its bearings from some kind of foundational concept like like nature or or human nature or history um, history in this sense meant as, as a kind of not not a kind of um, timeline of events but but kind of that that history has an arc to it and is kind of moving in a particular direction right Obama um, towards I think towards the end of his administration talked once or twice about the arc of the moral universe being long but that it bends towards justice that's a paraphrase of Martin Luther King but but this idea that history is kind of moving in a direction right mm -hmm. and so so that would be a foundation um, some people take their ideological position through religion but 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 through one of these kinds of foundations and then based upon that foundation you can kind of put together a linked set of views on the wide array of, of issues that confront us in the political sphere and in life more generally and so you you you, you have a, a, a set a belief system that tells you okay when it when it comes to uh, taxes or health care or whatever it may be you can you you you, you can Think about that, not just in the kind of silo of that particular issue, but with reference to um, a broader um, uh, understanding of, of, of the world. Um, and I guess one thing in, in that, that I always try to emphasize um, in class, and that's worth, I think, mentioning here is just that in the American case, when we talk about ideologies, it's, it's really on a much narrower scale than that word is used elsewhere. I mean, internationally, it's kind of more used to describe a, a kind of overall um, system of, of views that kind of explains everything. It, it, uh, it's an all-inclusive representation of the history, of the past, of the present, of the future, of everything. And in the American case, we, we we kind of have a softer version of that. And in fact, one of the debates in American political thought is is over whether conservatism is actually its own unique ideology or whether hmm. it's just a kind of offshoot of the liberal tradition, hmm. right? Because because really, if you if you take a little bit of a step back away from our day to day political squabbles, I mean, conservatives and liberals. In the in the U.S., really do agree on uh, quite a lot of the kind of basic basic things, and so there, there's just a far narrower spectrum of, uh, of of ideological views in the United States, and then you find in a lot of other countries, which really have you know hard left and hard right kind of perspectives and every variation in the middle. But you know, in the um, but 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 to bring the con bring it back to just the American context. I mean, a traditional understanding of the political spectrum in, in the United States um, and, you know, how you line up these ideologies, you can think of a few different dimensions, the economic sphere, the social and cultural sphere, and then foreign affairs. And mm -hmm. um, foreign affairs is probably the, the murkiest. It's the hardest to pin down. The uh, economic and social... Um, Areas are, are a little clearer, right? Basically, when it comes to economics, conservatives take a kind of uh, more hands-off approach, mm -hmm. um, tend to trust more in the free market, um, uh, these kinds of things, uh, whereas, whereas liberals uh, think that government has a more active role to play in the economy. Um, and, and welfare issues and things mm -hmm. like that. On the social and cultural front, it's kind of a little bit of the opposite, right? Basically, con on those issues, conservatives think that the government has a little bit more of an active role to play in kind of setting, um, setting norms and standards, in addition to laws um, about, you know, how, how people go about living, living their lives and enforcing a kind of traditional... Um, traditional set of behaviors and um, 
and uh, and all that. And liberals, um, liberals, when it comes to the social and cultural sphere, tend to tend to have a little bit more of a hands-off approach mm-hmm. um, with regard to, to 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 government. So, I mean, I think that's one way of of kind of very crudely understanding it. But one of the big questions is, and this maybe gets to one of the ideas you have behind the podcast is like, I mean, do average people think in these terms? Do they, do they even understand this stuff? And there's actually a huge amount of political research that says political science research that says, no, um, people, people are totally incoherent um, in their views when it comes to ideology, right? They, 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 they simply don't think in those terms. It doesn't line up even for people who call themselves conservatives or liberals. If you actually ask them a bunch of questions on policy, they hold policy views that are, that, that are totally opposed to the ideology they supposedly claim. Um, and so while, elites, you know, you know, leading politicians and, you know, writers in the intellectual sphere and everything, they know ideology, they understand it. Mm -hmm. And they understand that there's a certain list of things that go together and make sense as a coherent whole. Um, But most people don't, most people don't think like that. And one of the, one of the uh, curious things, interesting things about our situation today in the Trump era, I mean, is um, thinking about ideology in the political spectrum. I mean, it really raises a question of whether ideology, as we've traditionally understood it, is going to matter anymore. There's a lot to suggest that in the last couple of years it hasn't, um, hmm. that we're transitioning into a different kind of divide, something like, you know, populism on the one hand. Um, pitted against kind of experts and elites on the other, because you, you look at Donald Trump, he's, he's not an ideological figure. I mean, I think we can, we can probably safely say that he's among the, the, the vast majority of Americans and in, in not understanding or caring uh, perhaps yeah. you know, what exactly it is to be conservative. In fact, this was one of the, one of the big critiques of him during the campaign from the right Right. Is that he wasn't a conservative, right? He, he broke, he broke all these conservative orthodoxies, and and people thought, you know, in addition to all the behavioral issues, but mm. people thought that, oh my God, you can't, you can't say that, you know, and you, you can't say, for instance, I mean, he totally rejected the Paul Ryan thing on reforming, um, absolutely, uh, you know, Medicare Health, and Social Security yep. and all these things. Totally, totally rejected it. I mean, took a took a a kind of democratic, liberal democratic position from decades ago mm-hmm. that even the Democratic Party had moved away from. I mean, and so, and, and, and Trump just does this on issue after issue. And, um, and he didn't pay a price for it with, with Republican primary voters. So, yeah, it's a fascinating um, time. And you know, what's even more interesting is that in the same year that Trump won, especially in Montana, with such a huge margin of vote, almost 20%, Montanans also elected a Democratic governor. They re-elected their Democratic governor, Steve Bullock. And it isn't the first time that Montana voters have split tickets across party lines. What do you think that says about Montana, and why do you think it seems to happen more in Montana? It's it's not totally clear to me that it does happen way more here, right? Certainly it happens more than in, say, Idaho Mm -hmm. or or California or something. But But there are other places that have a tradition of this, even, even places that we consider to be, you know, like, like think of Massachusetts, which is, we think of as a, you know, hard democratic state, but they also have this, this long stretching back decades tradition of voting Republicans, um, in as governor. Certainly. Um, yeah. Have a Republican governor had now. And so, and so, you know, I don't, I don't know quite how, big of an anomaly Montana is in that sense. But, but I think certainly, certainly more and more states have kind of gone all in in one direction. That, that definitely seems to be the way things are shaking out. And so I'd say there, it, it, it's certainly at least uh, somewhat, somewhat novel in Montana. And there are maybe a couple things that spring to mind. I mean, well, right. Yeah. What do you think they are? We, we could, well, one, one, I think we, we could be in the midst of kind of a long transition from uh, 
what what we now call a purple state, right? But I'm thinking long before the 2000 election when we started talking and using these colors to describe states. But a kind of long tradition from a purple state to to a red state, mm -hmm. and you know, my one one thing I observe here is that. Um, Democrats in Montana, they, they, they still can get elected, but it's gotten harder. And you look at, um, you know, you, you mentioned Bullock, you know, and he, he won. He's won twice uh, for governor and won statewide, uh, won one statewide election prior to that. But he, he's not winning by huge margins. He, he cleared 50% last time. Mm -hmm. But um, but it was not a blowout, and the time before that, he was he was under fifty percent, right? Yeah. So he didn't have he, he didn't have a full majority. Tester also, he's never hit fifty percent in either right. of his two yeah. runs, and and I I think you know we should expect that 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 you know could be a, another real tough one next year for him. And you, but 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 you look at the flip side. Republicans tend to win very easily, right? When uh, when, when they win in this state. And so, right. I mean, and, and part of this, I think once some of those, those old institutions, like those institutional figures like Pat Williams and Max Baucus, you know, once, once these people leave the scene and, and you kind of have, um, you, you kind of have a start from scratch, right? it, it's more of a even playing field. Mm -hmm. um, you, you don't have someone with this long, this long history and legacy people know and are familiar with. You kind of start from, um, start from scratch. It, it seems to me like like Republicans have an advantage there, and um, and it's uh, you know ob obviously Democrats can still win, but but gosh, it always seems to be a squeaker and a nail biter on the Democratic side, whereas a lot of Republicans just you know rack up double digit wins. Um, yeah, it's a know, fascinating trend. Had a lot of those. Yeah, Zinke. And, uh, Certainly, yeah, Zinke won by a lot. You know, uh, Danes has won by a lot, and. Uh, I, I've heard that saying too that you know when Democrats win in the state it's by a hair and re when Republicans win it's it's by a landslide and I think that's an interesting uh, trend that we see in Montana politics. So I mean one other thing here that I mm -hmm. think is is probably important is is just the political culture of the state and I I do think that is um, is, is unique to Montana. I mean and a couple things I'd point to one that I mentioned earlier, I guess more in a national context, but just the how what a populist state it is. I mean populism mm -hmm. really runs strong here and, and just and, and by that I, I kind of mean this this um, this idea that um, you know elites are suspect, be it be it, be it you know, policy experts or um, you know, politicians back in Washington mm -hmm. or um, you know, economic elites in Manhattan, or you, you know, um, whatever it is, and, and a kind of um, thinking that you know what we need is kind of more common, commonsensical man on the street kind of perspective um, uh, to to deal with our problems, um, and and so that that runs very deep in Montana, and a kind of related thing is um, the. The, the Montana pride that's that, that's out there, and in a lot of ways, that's that's a great thing. It's one of the things that makes our state really special and fun and interesting. But it sometimes manifests itself in some, I think, less impressive ways. And I mean, one of the ways I see it is in this this uh, kind of what I think is a kind of unseemly obsession about counting how many generations your family has been in, in this state. I mean, politicians just fall all over themselves blurting out, I'm a fourth-generation Montana and fifth-generation Montana. Um, and, I, you know, there's something as though that's like um, a, a real mark of distinction, and, mm -hmm. and anyone who can't trace their family back that long is somehow suspect. Um, but, um, you know, for better or worse, there's that. And I guess the, the point... Of, of noting both of those things, populism and the Montana pride thing, is that these are just very powerful currents in Montana political culture, and they aren't things that are owned by either party. True. Um, candidates from both parties can play to that. I, I do think it works somewhat to the advantage of Republicans because 
playing to those aspects of Montana's political culture um, is a little bit more in keeping with with a with with a strand of conservatism, I think, and, and it contradicts some elements of progressive orthodoxy. I mean, progressives progressives tend to have a lot more faith in in experts. Yeah, um, they they don't think that you can just pluck anyone off the streets of Haver and um, and and put them in charge of. Uh, Department of Health and Human Services, or something, and, and, and things will work much better. If only we, uh, if, if only we could get rid of these uh, these so-called experts who are screwing everything up and uh, get some real Montana common sense back in Washington, everything would be good. I mean, pr- progressives just don't don't go. There, there, there's only so far down that down that street they're willing to go. And then, you know, also the the kind of um, almost nativism that comes with the like. I'm more Montana than you thing. It, it, I think it, it, it is a little bit in tension with, with progressive orthodoxy again. I mean, um, th- this kind of idea that, you know, we should hold, um, outsiders in, you know, at arm's length and be suspicious of them. I mean, so, so it's a little bit of a harder thing, I think for some, for some Democrats to make, but look, end of the day, um, the, the opportunity for candidates from both parties to harness those sentiments and um, and uh, use them to their advantage is something that helps keep things competitive in this state. And in fact, Democrats have been um, have been some of the best at, at harnessing those sentiments. I mean, Schweitzer was really kind yeah. of the, the perfect embodiment of, of of a lot of that. And um, and again, obviously, that's that's something that's open and available to to both political parties. A hundred years ago, the Republicans were considered the progressive party. You know, they were the party of Abraham Lincoln that ended slavery. You know, the party of Teddy Roosevelt that stood for the environment and the party Mm -hmm. of Jeanette Rankin that stood for women's rights. And now that sounds more like the Democratic Party of today. So, you know, what's happened over the past hundred years that's caused that realignment? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, yeah, it's very easy to kind of project our own our own views and our own prejudices back on um, back back on history, and and I think that can yeah. be a little dangerous. I mean, Lincoln um, and and the Republican Party, you know, formed as as you note, as I mean, it was an anti-slavery party, and. Um, the, the Democratic Party, in some ways, I mean, you could characterize it as as the slavery party. It was, um, in, in some ways, one of the more, more important aspects of of the party at that time, anyway. Um, and and you know, obviously, in in a sense, that lines up. If you want to kind of time warp that up till now, that you know, maybe that 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 kind of lines up more with with the Democratic Party, as you say, although you know, you know Republicans would uh, obviously reject the idea that they're somehow um, the pro-slavery party today. <laughs> sure. You know, but 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 with Lincoln, I mean Lincoln Lincoln was very conservative in 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 a lot of ways. And you go back to, you know, mm-hmm. the 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 thinking behind behind the anti-slavery position. It, it very much did line up with a with a with a certain view of nature, and you extrapolate from that, um, you know, the importance of um, the individual and of individual rights. Um, you know, there, there 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 is a very conservative line of thinking there, and and in a lot of other areas, Lincoln Lincoln was you know a, a conservative of of his day, and same with Rankin. I mean, Rankin's. Um, you know, there's another great example of that. I mean, Rankin is obviously most known for uh, her votes against the wars and for women's rights. But I mean, she was she was very conservative too. I mean, you, you take those two issues off the table, she was very conservative, and um, and and even then, I mean, I think for her, at least in in her way of thinking, those those two issues were 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 not out of keeping with her. With, with her other views, so um, you know it, these these things are are, uh, are 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 complicated. I mean, I think sure. Teddy Roosevelt is is a little bit of a stronger case. He actually he called himself a progressive, mm-hmm. and um, um, as you note, I mean, we we I think rightly remember him as 
as a, a pro environment president. Although even there, it's kind of weird. I mean, he, you know, his <laughs> a lot of his ideas around the environment were, you know, we need we need to protect the environment because it's an arena where young young men can go out and like test themselves against the elements and you know <laughs> that's true. become that's a real men right there's there's a different there's interpretation a kind of yeah machismo right it, it wasn't you know he wasn't a tree hugger exactly right. um, definitely not so 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 it so it gets it, it I, I think it gets a little um a little tricky and and yet you know these um these uh the party parties change and mm-hmm. You know, I, I do think we, we we might be seeing some real changes in 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 the two parties um, in the two parties right now. Or I guess that that's an open question. You know, moving moving forward. I mean, um, there certainly is a, a challenge to to what we've known as um, what what we've thought of as the Republican Party right now. I, I think for sure, um, and and you can see real internal tensions in the Democratic Party is as well. Yeah, both parties are are definitely experiencing tension right now and who knows, you know, they might realign in in some way that that we just can't predict. What is true is that we are coming into an election year again already. 2018 is just around the corner and we have two big races coming up. Um, you know, John Tester's Senate seat is John Tester's up for re-election and uh and then Congressman Greg Gianforte is up for his first re-election. So Right. There's two big statewide races happening. Um, you know, the parties are jockeying, and so it'll be in an interesting race, uh, I think, for Montana voters to, to stay engaged with. But at the same time, voter enthusiasm and participation right now is so low. You know, disenfranchisement is really high. Um, people are blaming increased polarization fueled by 24-hour media, the Internet, you know, increased money in politics. How do we get over that? Is is political polarization like this avoidable? Well, on some level, the answer is no. I mean, that's I think that's <laughs> politics. It's grounded in human nature. Um, I mean, people just in their nature associate with other people who are like them and have you know, like to make distinctions and break into groups. I mean, we, 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 see this at every level of society. And so, I mean, so, so the idea that I I think that we can ever overcome that is, um, yeah, that's simply not realistic. Sure. Um, I agree. And and so, (laughs) and so I think it's entirely natural and normal that we have, you know, two political parties, um, you know, you could have you could have more more political party a system that where where you had more political parties, of course. But I mean, people are going to break in break into groups, and I I mean I I don't think it's worth spending too much time worrying about whether or not that's good or bad, just because because regardless of whether it's good or bad, it's going to happen. Yeah, and so the, the the question then becomes, you know, trying to trying to channel that in in ways that are. Um, or positive, sure. And, constructive. You know, that, this was this was yeah, and constructive. I mean, this was one of the huge challenges that um, the, the the founders had to grapple with, and and went to great lengths to try to address. We could we we could talk about you know how how successful they were in that, but I I mean, but but the the other part of your question is, I mean, is. Um, you know, I, I think suggests that political polarization has gotten a lot worse, and and I think that that is hmm. that is yeah. true. And so, 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 you know, some people sometimes talk about, oh, we, you know, if only we could uh, get rid of it. You know, that's silly, but um, but it's not silly at all to, to to note that it's gotten worse, and that there are um, some some real concerns. I think that. That, that go along with that, and and you you point to, um, to to a number of them, you know the the twenty four hour media and and just the way um, the media has has broken up, you know I'm I'm not I'm not one who who usually likes to harken back to to, to the good old days, but um, and I, I think there were a lot of problems with how the media operated before, where where essentially mm-hmm. it was all 
it was all very centralized and you know walter everyone watched walter cronkite or whatever and well that i mean that 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 had its problems too you know we, yep. we probably don't want a, a a media system in which walter cronkite and a, and a handful of other outlets were like the only source and there's there, there's a lot of great stuff that's come along with you know the expansion of the media and how many how many uh opportunities we have um to 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 uh to to get content a, di- a diverse array of content i mean it's it's really remarkable but um but yeah but but you know on a societal level it does increase um people it, it does send people to um to 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 only see see things that basically have been pre-screened um, to, uh, to, to line up with their pre-existing beliefs. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that, that, I mean, I think our, our media culture is, is just one in which, um, it's, uh, there, there, there's for, for whatever pluses there are, there's some real negatives. And so it's hard, I think, to know how we, uh, how we get beyond that. Um, yeah. And, and you know, uh, that's what this show is, is really trying to explore, you know, and, and, um, i I like to believe that that it is possible to you know break through these these divisions in some way and, and a lot of times it's just talking with people you know a lot of these political divisions that we see are happening even within families and and you know the holidays are coming up Thanksgiving's just around the corner and politics is probably going to come up at the dinner table you know so what sort of advice <laughs> might you have for for people who are trying to speak with their family members who might disagree with them about politics, maybe more constructively or even just in a way to, that's safe to bring up. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Good question. Thorny question. I, you know, <laughs> look, part of, part, part of it is a long-term thing. It's not going to happen over Thanksgiving dinner, Yeah. but we, we somehow as a, as a country, as a, as a culture, as a, a state need to, I think get back to some of some of the basics of uh, what it is to to live in a in a liberal democracy, um, and by that I'm, I'm not using liberal in the liberal conservative sense of the <laughs> word, but but you know in, in the in the kind of representative democracy sure. sense of the word. Um, but you know part of part of part of that um, relies on um, things like civil discourse. On, um, on, on a shared acceptance of um, just kind of basic principles like, like free speech. And I mean, I, you know, our lack of understanding as a culture about what free speech is and why it's important is, is kind of shocking um, and disturbing to, to someone who, you know, teaches things like the Constitution and whatnot. So, I mean, we, we somehow need to, need to reinvigorate some of these basic principles of, um, of free speech and civil discourse and um, being able to uh, discuss things openly and frankly, but without, um, without the denouncing, denouncing people who disagree with you. And, um, and that's hard. I mean, that, you know, like I say, that's not going to happen over, over Thanksgiving, but we can all, I think, do a little bit of a better job of, of kind of modeling that and, um, and, and keeping, keeping in mind that, that some of these aspects, these more cultural aspects of American democracy are, um, are, I think at least every bit as important as, you know, what goes on in the Capitol in Washington or in Helena. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so some of these cultural norms I think need to be, um, brought back and revived and better understood. Um, the other thing I guess I would say is that, and this is also a little bit more broad, but you know, not, not everything has to be about politics. You know, it's, um, yeah, you know, it seems like there are fewer and fewer realms of our life that aren't politicized. Right. I mean, the, the NFL is a great example, right? So, so even, even when you're watching the football game before dinner, um, you know, now, now it seems like, you know, one has to have come down on one side or the other of, um, you know, the whole Colin Kaepernick 
thing that he started and yeah you know and it's um you know in entertainment and tv and the movies it's 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 kind of all over the place and i i think it would be it would be good you know to uh to depoliticize some of these areas and so i, I would agree. also encourage people to um maybe talk about something else over thanksgiving <laughs> <laughs> than uh, than politics you don't always have to lurch to that and retreat into our into our little camps well i think um, that's great advice and you know, maybe we could save the political conversations for this podcast. If people want that to, sounds good, Dan. If people want to save some grace at at Thanksgiving dinner, then uh, just tune in every couple of weeks when we have a new episode, and and we'll talk about <laughs> politics here. This is a safe space. So, <laughs> so thank you so much, Professor Saldine. Uh, you know, it's you're the first guest on the Montana Middle. There's always so much to talk about, and your insight is really valuable and helpful. You're always welcome on the show. Oh, well, I appreciate that, Dan. Thanks so much for having me, and, and best of luck on the podcast. I think it's a great project. Thanks a lot. We'll talk to you soon. Okay, bye-bye. That was Rob Saldine, professor of political science at the University of Montana and author of When Bad Policy Makes Good Politics, Running the Numbers on Health Reform. You can also catch him on Montana Public Radio's political programs, Capital Talk and Campaign Beat, hosted by Sally Mock. He's also working on a new book about the never-Trump movement among elite-level Republicans and conservatives. As this episode goes online, we are waiting to see if Governor Bullock will accept the state legislature's solution to close a $227 million budget gap, which was caused by a combination of lower-than-expected revenues and the catastrophic 2017 fire season. The legislature only meets for the first 90 days of every odd-numbered year, so this was a special session. It started last Tuesday and wrapped up late Thursday night. Going into it, the governor had proposed a three-pronged approach. One, cutting state agency budgets. Two, temporarily raising taxes. And three, finding money from elsewhere through fund transfers with each of those pieces covering about a third of the gap. Now, the Republican-controlled legislature accepted most of the governor's cuts and transfers, but not his proposal for temporary tax hikes. To uphold their vow to close the gap without raising taxes, Republicans found other means, including a controversial deal to extend a contract for a private prison in Shelby, which freed up about $30 million. We'll see if the governor accepts the whole package or vetoes anything, Stay tuned to it, folks, because it's something that affects people across the state. There's a lot of news out there about it already, so I'm not going to go into it anymore on this episode, but it'll definitely be a reference point for state legislative races in 2018, and I'm sure we'll revisit the issue in later episodes. That brings us to the last word segment of the Montana Middle. This segment is for random stuff that's interesting and related to Montana politics. For this last word, I found a clip of a speech President Kennedy made in Billings about two months before he was killed in Dallas. November 22nd marks the 54th anniversary of his death. So here's a tribute to President Kennedy. The potential of this country is unlimited. And there is no action which any of us can take in Washington which gives us greater confidence in the future of this country than to leave our city of Washington and come west to Wyoming, Montana, California, and recognize that in this golden area of the United States, that a great uh, writer from my own state of Massachusetts, Thoreau, was right when he said, east would I go only by force, west would I go free. I must walk towards Oregon and not towards Europe. I walk towards Montana. I express my thanks to all of you. And I'm confident that when the role of national effort in the 1960s is written, when a judgment is rendered, whether this generation of Americans took those steps at home and abroad to make it possible for those who came after us to live in greater security and prosperity, I am confident that history will write that in the 1960s, 
we did our part to maintain our country and make it more beautiful. Thank you. Rest in peace, President Kennedy. I'll post the link to that YouTube video on the website. There's some good footage that goes with it. Thanksgiving is just around the corner. I always have a lot to be thankful for, but for the podcast, I'm going to say I'm thankful for our veterans and our public servants. I'm thankful to the older generations of veterans who defended our country through the 20th century, and I'm also grateful to veterans who are my age, who are currently serving or were in Afghanistan or Iraq. I have a few friends from high school who went to Iraq and Afghanistan, and I'm glad they're back in the States now and living their lives. And to all the people working in public service in Montana, thank you. Thank you to our state legislators who took time out of their daily lives to be in Helena last week for some marathon sessions in the state capitol building. And thank you to all of the public servants keeping the state agencies running in the face of this budget crisis. To all of you out there who are traveling this Thanksgiving, safe travels. And that's our first show, folks. Thank you so much for listening in. Again, you can find us online at themontanamiddle.com and subscribe to the podcast with Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher. If you like the podcast, please give us a positive review on those platforms. I'll leave you with a song by Chris Sand, a.k.a. The Rappin' Cowboy. Chris grew up on the Flathead Indian Reservation and also worked as a long-haul trucker alongside his music career. He now lives in Missoula. Here he is. Troubles at the border, no struggles with my order, no fall the old fashioned phone booth till my quarter north wind don't howl, dispatcher don't growl, no flying jay shower with a missing bath towel, fog dissipates, and man stay awake, I got a date with my mate, I don't wanna be, gotta get home to my baby, gotta get home to my baby, gotta get home to my baby, and I gotta get home to my gal. 